Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Today we have Geezer Dad by Tom Lamar. Tom Lamar is the author of two previous works, October Revolution and Hallelujah City. This is the first nonfiction about his experiences as a first-time father at a later date, we'll say. Thank you so much, and without further delay, here's Tom Lamar. Thank you very much. I want to thank the Tattered Cover for having us here tonight. I want to thank my friends, who some of whom had a hand in helping me shape this book, give me good feedback. And since this is being taped for a Tattered Cover podcast, I want to thank the thousands of you who came out here tonight. <laughs> this book is a big departure for me, where I really like writing novels and I like talking about fiction, I think, more than I like talking about this book. But I wrote this book because when we were going going through the challenge of becoming parents at a later date, making tough choices, where the story starts out where with a typical pregnancy, which did not work out, and we ended up uh, you know, looking at all our options, as a lot of people do in their 30s and 40s. And all during that time, I was, we were buying a lot of books about parenting, different choices like adoption. People were giving us lots of books, and I kept thinking, nobody's giving me this book. I kept thinking, there's, there's, none of these books really apply specifically to me, and, and I know there's a lot of people worried about being older parents, have, have we waited too long? Is it still a good idea? And I kept waiting for somebody to write this book. And finally, about the time our daughter came along, I started writing this. And it was a process that uh, I did a lot of it then, and I did a, a bit of it later to, to bring it full circle and to actually make it about being an older dad. And I'm going to read the very beginning, and I'm going to need these because I am a geezer dad. And then I'm going to read a chapter about actually meeting our daughter. If it wasn't the boldest decision anyone ever made, it was big for us. After years spent discussing, debating, and generally overthinking our options, we would stop trying to not have a baby. We would place our fate in nature's hands, enjoy some wine each night with dinner, and see if anything happened. Something did. We were going to be parents. We had put in our time as a childless couple. When I first met Sam, and I also meant to thank my beautiful wife, who is not named Sam, <laughs> that change names to try and get, keep my family, give them some privacy. When I first met Sam in her home state of Florida, compact discs were a gimmick that would never take hold. In New York City, she accepted my proposal hours after dining at Windows on the World, atop a 107-story building that no longer exists. The restaurants and museums of Washington, D.C. placed the world within walking distance of our first home, a slim three-story townhouse. I started my own business as a freelance writer and was encouraged to learn that my neighbor also worked at home, until I looked out one afternoon to see our street turned into a police station parking lot. His crack house apparently had not been properly licensed. The barrels of semi-automatic rifles, dozens of them, gleamed in the sun. Three years into our marriage, we moved to Colorado to be closer to family, my brother and uncle, two aunts and six cousins, as well as the Rockies, the mountains, not the baseball team. Sam went back to school and landed an ideal job in the field of renewable energy. I worked weekends and nights for clients who compensated me well for the inconvenience of being handcuffed to a computer 
and as a result we bought a more desirable house than I ever thought I'd see with an English degree. Although we had lost our proximity to the National Gallery of Art, the incidence of crack house raids was greatly reduced. For the first time in our lives, Sam and I felt settled. A modest commute northwest of Denver, our small suburb had not surrendered all of its character when stripped of its identity as a coal mining town. Main Street still claimed a disproportionate number of authentic Italian restaurants, and a half-century-old fire burns to this day in one of the tunnels beneath Old Town. Our neighbors proved more interesting and diverse than the ones I'd been expecting to meet, and our bedroom windows opened to postcard views of the Continental Divide. It seemed like a good place to raise a kid. Now in her second month of pregnancy, Sam had never been more radiant or obsessed. She went cold turkey, bidding farewell to her her two 12-ounce bottles of Flying Dog beer with Friday night pizza. She made lists of baby names that wouldn't sound silly in five years. Our groceries were chosen with care. She added new colors like yellow and green. We were being set up. The miscarriage left us irreparably battered. We worked, read, ate, and slept as before, but we were not the same. Our house seemed bigger, emptier, quieter. Music didn't help. The walls absorbed all sound. Complicating matters, it soon became clear that the two of us weren't going through the same crisis. When Sam told me she was grieving, I couldn't simply nod and say, I know exactly what you're feeling. Having seen the fetal tissue and having carried it in a clear plastic bag to the medical clinic, an experience I could have done without, I had difficulty perceiving it as a human being. What I had seen was a collection of cells, an unformed pink glob that couldn't have weighed three ounces and had never been destined to become something greater. This wasn't the same as losing my dad. I felt pain, but for Sam alone, for the weight I couldn't help carry. Of course, I was able to understand that her mourning was for the concept, for the promise of a child, but I wasn't ready to bury that concept. We know we can get pregnant, I said. We weren't even off the pill that long. It can't be that hard to have a baby. I was wrong. Three words that appear frequently in this account. What I did see clearly was a lover and friend in distress. The radiance had faded, leaving only obsession. Sam no longer felt ambivalent. She wanted a child, preferably that instant. I've watched my friends get pregnant, she said. Their kids are all they talk about. Although I recalled conversations with these same friends about books, music, politics, and weather, I understood why Sam's memory had become so selective. This was a woman with a profound maternal instinct. In her office and book club, she had always been the leader, the planner. She was the one who collected for birthdays and showers, the one who arrived at potluck dinners with food enough for everyone. Only one technicality prevented her from being mom of the year, her not having the child she was meant to nurture and cherish. I want to hear someone say, Mommy, I love you, to me. Is that too much to ask from life? Compounding our discomfort, I had prevailed a few weeks earlier in making the case, what harm could there be in telling our family and a few close friends? As a result, our misfortune stalked us. Moms and brothers called to offer support and see how we were doing. You and Sam must really be grieving. We couldn't get away from what had gone wrong. Penny and Carl, two thoughtful friends who happened to be neighbors and successful parents, showed up one evening with flowers, a gesture that brought needed color and cheer into our home. Their act of kindness kindness make me look bad as well, given that they had selfishly written their own names on the card. I was the one who should have ordered flowers and would have ordered flowers had I not forgotten how, thanks to our two surrogate children. House cats their entire lives, Bud and Hobbs, loved, loved nothing more than having nature delivered to them in a vase, meaning a bouquet is generally good for a day after it shows up on our doorstep. The boys are partial to petals, leaves, and stems. The card is usually spared. If a flower arrangement is to have any chance of survival in this less-than-friendly environment, it must seek shelter fast on the floor of our, shel- of our shower, its beauty locked behind smoky glass, out of reach to man and cat. 
As if saying, I dare you two to mess with me now, Sam placed the vase on a dresser in our bedroom. But the boys seemed to know that these flowers were special and left them alone for an extra ten hours. My wife savored the post-impressionistic splashes of pink, red, and blue right up until I heard her shout, Damn it, bud, get away from the flowers! The exhibit closed that evening with a janitor, me, vacuuming, vacuuming up the petals and stems, or what could loosely be identified as such. Two other good friends, Ellen and Jane, came to our house with news and a book. The news? They had just submitted a sizable first payment to global Chinese-American adoptions. They were going to be a family. The book they brought continued the theme, The Lost Daughters of China, a used copy, from the wonderfully funky used bookstore in Old Town, just off of Main Street. Ellen's the owner. You should consider it, Jane said. Read the book. My wife told Jane that we'd do, bo do both, and I knew she would read the book. But I also knew Sam wanted two things no adoption agency could provide, the experience of pregnancy and holding her own infant in her arms. So we'll skip ahead six years here where this book documents the conflicts, the ups and downs we went through as we tried to, as first of all, we tried to get pregnant and as science came to our aid, but not successfully, we had to make a lot of decisions. Our friends obviously were going through a successful adoption and we met a lot of other people in similar situations, other people making different choices than we had. And we had a lot of choices to make and it took us a lot of time. And four years later, we um, entered into the adoption process I guess four and a half years later. And that was a very long, slow uh, experience with nothing happening. We, you know, go to meetings, we learned, we went to, went to classes and learned a lot about being parents and about the law and what would be involved with adoption. But apart from that, it was a long, grueling wait. And then suddenly everything happens very quickly with adoption. And I think that's fairly typical. And I'm going to read from the last part of the chapter, Instant Baby, Just Add Milk. And before, before I get to this part, we have met the birth mother and we have not met our daughter yet. We learn we're going to go to Longmont to meet our daughter who's in the care of two foster parents. She's only a few days old. And after meeting, with, meeting the birth mother we, mother, we stopped at Babies or Us and bought a, a changing table that was a split-level dresser the size of a sedan that was impossible to lift and had to be put together. One hour, two stops, and 30 minutes later, everything changed. Sam and I met Evelyn. The cutest baby we'd ever seen, she was tiny and trusty, trusting, hairy too, exactly as, exactly as captured in the caseworker's photos. We had just been welcomed into the home of strangers, though these were not strangers to Evelyn. Karen and Chuck, the cradle care parents, had fed and bathed her for most of her short life. To this fragile being, Sam and I were the strangers. Karen held the baby. So what do you think, asked Don, and Don is our caseworker from the agency. Asked Don from an armchair in the corner, a toy carousel horse at her feet. You do good work, I said. Taking my first real look around the living room, I noted that Karen and Chuck were minimalists when it came to home decor. Essential furniture only, a, f a few family photos in simple frames. I saw no museum prints, no exotic souvenirs from Bali or Spain or even the Ozarks. I knew the, I knew the reason, adoption times three. I noticed one more detail. The owners of this house appeared to be happy. Same explanation. They joked about keeping Evelyn, making it an even four. Sam didn't laugh. I know they say all babies are beautiful, Don said, but in my professional capacity, I can assure you it's not true. This baby is beautiful. Evelyn's been a delight, said Karen, while handing Sam her infant daughter for the first time. Except at night, a boy's voice interjected from the kitchen. She's got the room right next to mine. 
The baby looked up at my wife with innocent eyes that said, he must be mistaking me for someone else. Sam cried, and I realized I was viewing the scene through my own tears. Baby girl, I whispered, leaning forward. Our daughter smelled like lilacs. Meet mommy and daddy. Oh, we were also going to have our, our last romantic dinner that night, and we had champagne. We were planning to enjoy the evening, and then we bought the changing table. I spent that evening eating slices of leftover pizza, stuck behind prescription reading glasses that limited my, my field of vision to the 10-inch radius, straining to master the Gray's Anatomy of Instruction booklets. Dozens of parts, some dinky, some huge, concealed the, the guest room carpet. These, in turn, were encircled by hundreds of screws and bolts. You sure she really needs this? Have some more champagne, Sam said. Oh, right, our last romantic dinner. The following morning, morning, we were back at the cradle care house for the placement ceremony, which impossibly proved more emotional than anything before. As Don showed up with Margaret, the agency's founder, I was trying to balance a camcorder on its tripod, which now blocked the doorway that led to the dining room. Sam had borrowed this camera the night before, dashing over to our friends while I stared down my furniture parts. Playing with it now, I couldn't tell which switch was which. But before I could dig up my glasses and remind everyone just how old I really was, Chuck, the cradle care dad, came to my rescue saying, We've got one of those. He promptly bolted the camera into place and aimed it at the couch where Sam and I would be sitting. He also killed the autofocus, something I wouldn't discover till I copied the recording, ensuring that the entire ceremony would be preserved in a washed-out blur. This was appropriate, I would later concede, since that watery distortion added realism to our record of a tear-filled, of, tear-filled affair. Then we were ready, everyone in place. Sam and I were joined at the hip as we shared the joy of holding our baby. Evelyn seemed to stare at our faces, though I knew she relied more on hearing and smell to establish who we were. Margaret explained how the ceremony would proceed. As you know, each of us will have the opportunity to speak. The founder, it was, it was clear, preferred keeping her rituals organized. On the first go-round, you may say whatever you want, provided it relates to the proceedings. Chuck, let's start with you. It's a privilege to watch this. The cradle care dad had temporarily abandoned his place behind the camera and stood now on our blurry side. This was how we would remember Chuck, backside only, out of focus. We're honored to play a role in this life-changing event. Keeping her eyes on baby Evelyn, Karen smiled broadly and said, Really, it was our pleasure to help her through her first days on Earth. This child is a joy. You three will have so much fun. When it was Sam's turn to speak, she read a short poem of a prayer that Jane had left for us at the bookstore, taken from some goddess-heavy pre-Christian European religion. Divine Mother, giver of life, we thank you for this precious life that has been given to us to tend and nourish. The cradle care parents and agency professionals professionals listened respectfully. No, stop, stop, adoption over. This baby will not be raised by pagans. May your blessings follow this young one throughout her life. May she grow in beauty and wisdom. May she learn your ways and know the wonder of your creation, O great pre-Christian goddess. Tom, said Margaret, do you have something you wish to contribute? I returned Evelyn to my wife's ready arms and, along with my glasses, pulled out the used paper book we had picked up at Ellen's store, Roots by Alex Haley. Opening to the page I had earmarked, I haltingly, haltingly read the famous passage that brought to life a centuries-old naming ritual. I paraphrased extensively the reason for my stop-and-start delivery, amending the gender to suit little Evelyn. While the others watched from, from, watched from a distance, I stood at the outermost edge of my village. It was long past nightfall and the sky was silky and cloudless as I lifted my baby to face the infinite expanse of stars. A cricket chirped. I adjusted my glasses. And speaking softly in deference to any noble ancestors who might be present, I instructed my daughter to behold the only thing greater than yourself. All right, Margaret said. We complete the, the placement ceremony by going around the circle one last time. 
Everyone is to make a wish for young Evelyn's future. Mine is that each day delivers some joy, knowledge, and surprise. Am I next? Karen asked. My wish for Evelyn is for her to bring as much joy to others as she's brought to us. Our baby cried for the first time in our presence, but it lasted only seconds. For the rest of the ceremony, Sam held Evelyn close to her chest, bobbing her gently. You're a natural, said Chuck at the start of his turn, this time off camera. I wish for the three of you to have a wonderful life together. I wish, Don said with a sniffle, for Evelyn to fulfill her, her potential. Then she'll be as smart and happy and talented as she is capable of being. Margaret looked at me and smiled. Tom? My biggest wish is for Evelyn to become a good person, decent and thoughtful and caring. But I also want her to find the reward she seeks, and I want her to sleep straight through the night by the time she's three months old. That's aiming high, Margaret said. Sam, do you have anything realistic to add? Using her free hand to wipe away tears, Sam replied, I just want to say one thing. This was meant to be. I know it sounds strange, but I'm glad everything else went wrong. Your wish, Margaret said. I hope we can make her as happy as she's made us today. That first evening in our house, I watched Sam jump each time her baby breathed. I watched Bud and Hobbs dart away to seek safe haven in the basement. I watched powder and water merge to become formula in a half-gallon pitcher, watched diapers go from white to green. And I stared blankly at the bolts and screws and pressboard panels that seemed to have proliferated since the night before, where the guest room carpet used to be. I gave up on the changing table around 11 after waking with a start, a dozen screws embedded sideways in my cheek. Shaking them loose, I stumbled across the hallway to our bedroom, determined to sleep in a hardware-free environment. But once in bed, I stayed up listening to the bubbly sounds that spilled out of the bassinet near Sam's side of the bed. This is it, the long-delayed test. After six years of wondering how I'd react to having a helpless new being in my life, house and years, there she was, theory made flesh. After six years of asking how I'd really do as the father of an infant, there I was, pleasantly surprised by the answer. Sam took my hand and whispered, our instant baby. Only took six years. Six years of waiting, she said, and trying and hoping for this moment. Of battling modest foes like nature, society, and the insurance industry. I heard her sigh. This has been the most wonderful day of my life. Did you get the changing table done? <laughs> On Wednesday morning, our phone rang for the first of 2,000 times. So how is it? Ellen asked. We're so lucky, I said. Perfect baby, perfect circumstances. The birth father even showed up. He called the agency, agreeing that this was the best thing for Evelyn. He's going in on Thursday to sign the relinquishment papers. That's wonderful, Ellen said. Like I said, we got lucky. I think you two were due some luck. I know this makes me a freak, I said, but I'm still not sorry we waited as long as we did. You should see this baby. She's amazing. Ellen told me that she, Grace, and Jane were dying to... Grace is their daughter. We're dying to meet Evelyn, but they wanted to give us some time to catch up on her breathing. You're going to need it. Believe it. Believe me. The luck theory was reinforced when Carl and Penny, and Carl and Penny are neighbors of ours who are actually an amalgam of a, a number of people we knew. But uh, in this book, they are neighbors who have assisted us with a number of things, including shooting a video that we had to turn into the adoption agency to, to show perspective of birth mothers. So the luck theory was reinforced when Carl and Penny showed up that evening to welcome their new neighbor, bearing enough food to sustain a pair of grown-ups for several days. And you could hold onto the camcorder for as long as you need it, Carl told us, within reason, of course. Thanks, I said, if you could just show me the autofocus. Then the surprise from Penny, who apparently didn't think we'd had enough surprises that week. She asked if she could speak with us alone, and Carl went outside, saying he'd left something back at the house. Oh, he knows, Penny said. I just felt this would be easier if he wasn't here. She took a deep breath, looking down at the floor, then shyly raised her eyes to meet Sam's. 
Our kids don't even know what I'm about to tell you. When I was in high school, the portable swamp cooler whirred to, li whirred to life in the next room. It happened to me. I saw adoption from the other side. Another pause. It was the toughest thing I've ever been through, but there wasn't much of a choice. My folks made it clear I was, was not raising a child under their roof. Looking back now, I don't know how much of it was my little town in Nebraska and how much of it was the times, but things were so different. Counseling, openness, I tell you, for those eight months, I was a non-entity. In the years since, you won't believe how much time I've spent wondering what happened to that baby, a baby I held for all of a minute. Still, strange as it sounds, I've always had mixed feelings about her looking for me. Sam reached for her box of Kleenex and handed it to Penny. I want to know how her life turned out, our friend resumed. Carl would be okay with it, with her calling to say she found me. At the same time of me, a bigger at the same time, a bigger part of me wants to keep the past where it belongs, in the past. There was the slightest hint of a smile. I know, I know, I'm living proof that that's impossible. Anyway, what I wanted to say was, I think, I think that watching the two of you go through all this was what I always needed, without knowing it, of course. Ever since you told me you were adopting, I've imagined you as the parents who took that baby home and made her, her their own. That gave me a picture, a picture I was comfortable with. It's such a big help to finally see just how much that child was wanted, more than any other child could be. These past few days, everything came full circle for me. Sam looked over at me and I knew what she was asking. Could you get that other box of Kleenex from the kitchen? You know, more than anything, I would have liked to meet the couple that ended up with her. Now in some ways, it feels like I have. The swamp cooler reached the end of its cycle and silence settled everywhere. This was broken by Carl's light knock. Walking back in, he carried a gift, a handcrafted Kachina doll. Penny smiled at her husband but kept hugging Sam. There's one thing you two need to understand. I don't re regret helping that child find a better path and someday soon, Evelyn's birth mother will feel the same way. I couldn't have lived that other life. It wouldn't have been fair to me or that child. We both deserve better. When this new stretch of silence threatened to last forever, Carl said, Hey, Tom, let me show you that thing on the camera. On Thursday afternoon, Don, Don called to report that the birth father had stayed true to his word and relinquished his rights. The bottle of champagne came back out, and from a blanket on the floor, Evelyn did her best to watch as I fastened the handles to the changing table drawers, which were still arranged in pieces about the floor. The main frame now stood as a single solid unit, though five empty tunnels cried out for me to complete those drawers. That happened on Friday. By the time Evelyn dozed off for her first short nap, only six screws remained of the original 2,796. My wrist ached from carpal tunnel as I turned a page in the instruction book that defined there were no more steps, only a dubious 100% total satisfaction guarantee. Simply disassemble the item and return by priority mail in its original packaging. I looked to my left and sure enough, saw a changing table identical to the one in the storeroom display. Sporting the giddy smile of a new dad who had finished a glass of champagne after barely sleeping for days on end, I pulled myself up from the floor. The last of my joints snapped back into place as I lumbered across the hall. What's going on, Sam asked as I removed Evelyn from her bassinet. You know she's going to cry. Silence. You must follow. Then the three of us huddled in the room that had just taken its first real step toward becoming a nursery. Incredible, Sam said. It's just like the floor model, except for the handles. Are they right side up? Without responding, I held my daughter out before me, my hands on her sides, tucked beneath, tucked beneath her armpits. She was facing the changing table. She looked tiny before it. Sweet baby Evelyn, I said. Behold the only thing greater than yourself. And now I'm actually going to look up at you people. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, this is the part where I get to relax a little bit and you get to ask me questions. If anyone has any.
besides my cousin Tom, who's not allowed. <laughs> yes, Nancy. She's 13 now. And she's still a great kid. She's got a teenager inclinations, but she's really a sweet kid. Nikki? Okay, that's a great question because the question was, is it hard to write about something so personal as compared to writing fiction? And the answer is no. I'm a writing addict, and when this was all happening, I kept thinking something actually is interesting is happening to me. And as I, too, I saw a need for this, not a need for this book, but I saw a place for this book where I knew a lot of people were going through what we were going through, and there was, if nothing else, this would offer some encouragement, knowing there were lots of other people doing it, too. But writing it wasn't that difficult. I mean, writing is always difficult, but it was, it's fun as well. But publishing it, when I, when I was being set the second set of proofs, and saw the cover and everything, I was very nervous. I, I was ready to say, you can't do this, but of course I was under contract to do it. But I had serious second thoughts about how personal it was. And the funniest chapter in here I would never think to read in public, but it's about things we had to go through on the path to becoming parents. Sam, Sam, excuse me, Tim. <laughs> Actually, I've got to give you an anecdote first before I answer that question, which is I had to do an hour-long inter- interview, radio interview, shortly after this was new, and I had not thought about using the pseudonyms for my wife and daughter. And almost every question was, how's Sam doing? What, what happened with Evelyn? And, and I could not juggle it. One time I mentioned Anne, and I just heard this deafening silence as a... Is Anne your other wife? What what is this? So, <laughs> but yes, I remember showing some of it to Anne. I remember showing some of it to you and to my writer writers group friends. And some of this was written a long time ago. This book has a history as long as our history, where I wrote a lot of it when I was a new father. A lot of it I was in the sleep deprived state, and it actually came quite easily to me in that in that period. Um, I wrote quite a bit, and at the time this had a big agent representing it, and they were pushing it and three publishers came close to publishing it a long time ago and have all these wonderful rejection letters about I really wish they'd taken it you know we I laughed I cried all the react, all the reactions you could want but they weren't sure it was a mass enough mass market book but one of those letters I looked at those recently actually brought up the serious flaw the book had which it, it really wasn't about being an older dad because one thing I've realized in hindsight is that everybody who has a new child might as well be 60 or 80 or whatever because that's how you feel for a few months. And um, in, got to think, the year before last, I had two publishers interested in this, and it occurred to me, I, I, we'd gone through a lot of serious uh, medical issues that year too, and I was partly wondering if I could still write after something that had happened to me that is mentioned in the book. But I realized it needed an ending to bring it up to date and to make it more about being a geezer dad. And I think the final chapter actually made this book work, and I'm actually fairly proud of it. But I couldn't read it to you tonight because then you wouldn't have to read the book. So 
So this book was written over a long period of time with a big, because the agent had sent it so many places, there weren't a lot of places to send it. Every once in a while, I would go online and see what publishers were interested in parenting and adoption books. And in the small world category, um, a woman who is one of the principals of the publishing company that took it had actually seen it the first time around and had always been one of the people pushing for it. So that worked too. So they were, like I said, the book came full circle at that point. Any other questions? Yeah, Luther. Well, well, it is interesting because, and some of the questions tonight reflect this, but it is strange being asked questions as if I'm the expert on this. And, But I always thought that when I was writing it, too, that I thought, besides there being a place for this book, it does have a hook. It has an angle because it's something, if you look around, you see geezer dads, you see older parents everywhere. And one thing that helps probably with it not being published 10 years ago, besides having a better ending or having the ending it needed, is... The phenomenon certainly is is growing. That I, my daughter's teacher is here, and when I visit her school, I do not feel like the only old dad there. <laughs> he can attest to that. Well, thank you again for coming. Thank you for the questions. That's all for tonight's author on tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.